You're listening to ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mary Simmerling. Dr. Simmerling received her Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Illinois at Chicago. She is currently Director of Research Integrity at the University of Chicago, where she's also a senior fellow in the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics and an associate in the Department of Surgery Section of Transplantation. Thank you, Dr. Simmerling, for visiting with us today. Thank you, Dr. Pinkard. We're going to be talking mainly about some of the ethical issues that are involved in transplant surgery. Dr. Simmerling, could you just start off by telling us what's involved in getting a consent from a directed living donor? Most living organ donors in the United States are related to the people to whom they intend to give their organs. When the people who need to get transplants, the intended recipients of the organs, meet with their physicians. The physicians talk to the, to the recipients about the possibility of getting an organ from a deceased donor and normally also talk about the possibilities of getting an organ from a living donor if that's something that, that's possible for that patient. And that's when the discussion of living donors begins and it's kind of when the recruitment of the living donor begins because it's usually the person who is the intended recipient who approaches the family member about becoming an organ donor. How does autonomy enter into this kind of decision-making process? Well, this has been a very contentious part of transplantation, actually, living donor transplantation. So when we're talking about autonomy, we're talking about a person's ability to make a decision uh, voluntarily, to act on their own behalf, and to make a decision for themselves um, in a way that isn't coerced or interfered with by anybody else. When living organ donor transplantation uh, for livers, for example, was first introduced, one of the first cases that was done was from a parent to a child, and some of the first cases were done at the University of Chicago here in Chicago. Yeah, these are the ties that bind. And the idea in this case was that the risks were uncertain, and so when you were inviting the parents, when the transplant surgeons were inviting the parents to do this, some parents were saying, look, I don't care what the risks are, this is something that I want to do, it may be my only chance to save my child. And as a result of that kind of thinking and and the issue being brought to the attention of the medical community through a a publication um, in the New England Journal of Medicine, the physicians at University of Chicago published their deliberations, the ethical deliberations on the case in the New England Journal, and there was a lot of controversy and a lot of criticism from people saying that these parents were going to be coerced into doing this because they couldn't say no to it. And this this has been a problem that has kind of plagued transplantation, living donor transplantation, since the inception and since it's been ongoing and hasn't been solved yet. So is that really voluntary behavior when a parent does what you've just described? The idea is that there are certain essential elements of consent Um, It has to be voluntary, it has to be informed, uh, that people have to understand what they're getting into, and it's it's a very um, systematic process, and it's very rule-based. And one of the worries is that the consent process, as we have it established, uh, the people in the medical community, doesn't match on to the way that actual donors appear to make decisions. So we have this big elaborate process and we have consent forms and we have cooling off periods and all these procedures in place and often what ends up happening is the 
donor learns about the procedure, the, the potential donor learns about the procedure from the person who needs the organ, and as soon as they hear about it, they decide right then and there that they're going to do it. So they've made their decision before they've been informed. They've already made up their mind. Well, that's one way of understanding it, is that they've made their decision before they've been informed. But another way of thinking about it might be that they haven't been fully informed, but that they're working with some operational knowledge that really is meaningful for them and really does inform their decision-making in very important ways. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Mary Simmerling, an ethicist who, in basically, we are talking about the ethical issues of kidney and liver transplantation in both living and cadaver donors. Thank you again, Dr. Simmerling, for joining us. We talked about who can say no if you're related. How about taking the stance who can say yes if you're unrelated? Right. So there are two problems uh, that seem to be plaguing this area of living donor transplantation, and that is if you are related to the person who, for whom you want, to whom you want to give an organ, the worry is that you're kind of dragged around by your emotions and you can't think clearly and you couldn't say no. On the flip side, if you're a person who wants to become an or, a living organ donor and you don't have any particular person to whom you're going to give the organ, if no one could say no because the stakes are so high emotionally, and, and there's significant risk, or some significant risk. If you don't have that emotional bond to the attended recipients, the question is, why are you, you doing this at all? And so who would say yes to taking on these risks to themselves if they don't have that emotional connection to a particular recipient who they want to help? Exactly. And how does a surgeon deal with such a situation when it comes to him? Does he question it? After all, it's not only... Uh, the family that's involved, the donor and the non-related donor, uh, the physicians involved, the surgeons involved, and the institution that he represents is involved. Right. So there are, there are a lot of different issues that these different people who are taking part in this would want to consider. One of the things that is important in the consent process for any kind of a donor is whether or not they are competent to make a decision. And so often when non-directed living donors come in to a transplant center or call a transplant center and say that they want to become a donor, they're interviewed about why they want to become a donor. Is there some connection they have to someone who needed a transplant or is there some, is there some uh, justification for them wanting to do this that shows they appreciate the risks and benefits and the potential outcomes? I see. So, in a way, the, the donor has to be protected in many ways, and you've touched on a couple of them. Psychological assessment is certainly one. What would you say, and you mentioned cooling off period. Have, has, does it ever come to be that you give them a medical excuse, at least temporarily, so that they can evaluate their risk? If you look at the history of transplantation with living organ donors, the organs were used from living related donors. The first successful transplant was between twins, and so there were, there were all these donors that were related to each other. And there was a lot of concern that people in families wouldn't feel free to say no for whatever reason. So if they were approached, they, they wouldn't be able to say no, even if their true desire was not to go through with donation, because 
they thought uh, there was a worry on behalf of the transplant community that these potential donors uh, would be too afraid to say their true feelings because they would be afraid of being ostracized by the family or they would be ashamed of not wanting to do it. And saying no coming from a medical authority instead of coming from the patient themselves would take the burden off of them in some way. And it's kind of an unassailable excuse. But there are, I think, a lot of reasons to worry about using medical excuses in organ transplantation. And that's not to say I don't think that there are some cases where it might be um, really important to use that, but I think that they're probably few and far between. There are reasons to worry about using the excuse just because it might not actually achieve the goal that, that we have for it, which is to help the person blamelessly get out of something. They may feel tremendous guilt. That there may be other repercussions. And there's also this whole practice of shielding patients from, from terminal diagnosis and with cancer that went on for many, many years in the U.S. where uh, physicians thought they were protecting patients from having this bad information. We stopped doing this and we looked at what was going on and we actually asked patients what they wanted to know. It turned out that they really did want to know what was happening with them and what their diagnosis was. And we really weren't protecting them from anything. We were actually keeping them from being able to have the information that they wanted to be able to plan their lives. You know, in closing, I'd like to ask you just one question. Do you think physicians themselves need some help in separating themselves from their own individual values? An example might be how you might respond to a single parent who wants to be a donor or a man who wants to be a donor who is the only provider and has six children. I think that there are real practical issues that need to be taken into consideration for people who want to be uh, living organ donors. It's, it, it does require time off of work if you have a job. It does require hospitalization. It does require follow-up work. Sometimes people have to fly um, from where they live to the place where the transplant's being done, and they have to maybe need to bring some family with them. So it's not as though it's a small thing. Um, there was a, a case recently that uh, I, I heard about a, a donor who, uh, whose case was written up in the paper who had to take two months off from work. He was a liver donor, and he took two months off from work, and it, and it was $14,000 in wages that he um, wasn't able to realize because he wasn't able to work because he was recovering from the procedure. I want to thank Dr. Mary Simmerling, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing renal transplantation, kidney transplantations, and the overlapping ethical issues that become involved. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.